You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus... Tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless Information Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The story that you're about to hear is titled Jack the Stripper, and it was released back on March 20th of 2012. It was the third episode of the fifth year of this podcast, and it's a quirky crime story that I think you're really going to enjoy. I should add that it's a good thing that I'm going back and listening to these old episodes so many years later, and that's because the uploaded copy had a distortion in it. About 10 minutes in, it was just unlistenable to. But luckily, I still have the original recording that I made, and I've edited that into this file. Enjoy. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, Jack the Stripper. Now, before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about NASA's space station Skylab, which came crashing back to Earth in July of 1979. If you're old enough to remember it, uh, its re-entry was quite the news story in its day. Uh, Now, pieces of it were scattered over a fairly wide area south of Perth, Australia. And as a bit of a joke, the Shire of Esperance fined NASA for littering. So how much did they fine NASA? Was it one four hundred dollars, two eight hundred dollars, three fifteen hundred dollars, four twenty three hundred dollars, or five forty seven hundred dollars? Again, how much was NASA fined by the Shire of Esperance for littering? Was it one four hundred dollars, two eight hundred dollars, three fifteen hundred dollars, four twenty three hundred dollars, or five forty seven hundred dollars? And as always, I'll let you ponder over this question for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story titled, Jack the Stripper. And this is a story that I stumbled upon a few months ago, and I found it to be very amusing. So I hope you do too. The story started making national headlines during the month of February, way back in 1960, And when I saw the headline, quote, Jack the Stripper prowls San Diego, I made the immediate assumption that some guy was flashing others around the city. But I was way off on this one. I was really wrong. The bandit dubbed Jack the Stripper by the city police pretty much had the same modus operandi every single time. 
Take, for example, the crime that he committed on the evening of February 21st in 1960. Uh, and by the way, that was a Sunday, if you're curious. It was on this night that the gunman, donning a rubber Halloween mask of a woman's face, walked into the bar at the Crest Inn and demanded all of the money from the cash register. He then asked all of the men, all four of them, I guess you can call it a slow night, oh, and I should mention that included the bartender, so it must have been a really, really slow night, to dump their wallets on the bar, and then he locked all four men into the restroom. Now, I know this sounds like the type of crime that is committed somewhere in the world every single day, probably every hour, but as with all the stories that I tell, this one has a twist. You see, Jack the Stripper always makes all of the women present at the bar strip naked. He then leaves with all of their belongings, and on this particular night, the one lucky woman happened to be 30-year-old barmaid named Jacqueline Joan Cantu. So let me ask you, if you were in her position, what would you do? You know, Would you scream, run for your life? Well, not Ms. Cantu. She simply said, quote, Oh no, not again, end quote. To which the bandit replied, quote, Yes, ma'am, just like before, end quote. What you're thinking is correct. This was a repeat crime. He had robbed the same bar just three weeks earlier on Sunday, January 31st. His haul in the first robbery was $148. That's about $1,125 in today's money. But this time it was only $88.18. That's about $675 today. Now, the press didn't dub him Jack the Stripper for no reason at all. As you probably guessed, Ms. Cantu had to disrobe on both occasions. But this time she was taped to the table. So now's a good time for a joke. A guy walks into a bar and orders a beer. The bartender happens to be wearing a rubber Halloween mask. And then there's a naked woman taped to one of the tables. So what did the customer observe? The answer, absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. The only problem is this is not a joke. It really did happen. Afterward, the witness told the police, quote, I thought she was a mannequin and that a masquerade party was going on, end quote. Now, I have no evidence to support my hypothesis, but I can only guess that this particular witness, if you can call him that, was drunk as a skunk. And Jack the Stripper didn't stop there. Just four days later, he robbed Tommy's Tavern for, get this, he robbed it for the fourth time. Now, I can't help but wonder where the police were in all of this. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out which establishment he's going to rob next. This guy clearly had a pattern. Anyway, I diverge from my story. So here he is robbing Tommy's Tavern for the fourth time. And one female customer, a Mrs. DeLore, freaked out when she was ordered to strip. Refusing, the bandit started to rip off her blouse. She, so she was left with no other choice, and she ultimately took her clothes off. A waitress at Tommy's Tavern named Gerald Stoner had been forced to disrobe during two of the previous robberies. So she did the wisest thing possible. She had her schedule changed so that she could work the day shift instead. She figured that since the bandit was a creature of habit, you know, always robbing in the wee hours of the morning, she would be safe. Now that almost worked except that on this particular evening, she had been at Tommy's celebrating her birthday. 
I bet she never planned on spending her birthday wearing her birthday suit, if you uh, know what I mean. While his shtick may have seemed incredibly predictable, and I hate to say it monotonous at this point, his escape didn't go well at all. He took the keys to a customer's pickup truck and then sped away. That's when the bartender, a guy named Frank Caslow, grabbed a 410 gauge shotgun from behind the counter, took aim, and then fired at the escaping criminal. Caslow's aim was dead on, striking the truck's rear window right behind Jack's head. But for some reason, the blast was not powerful enough to do any damage. Meanwhile, a customer named Jerry White jumped into his own car and chased after Jack. About two blocks from the robbery, Jack abandoned the pickup and then fled on foot. White, armed with a pistol, took aim at the fleeing robber and fired two shots. Both missed the intended target. A total of 14 police cars, six from the Chula Vista Police Department and eight from the San Diego County Sheriff's Office, hunted for Jack. They were too late. Jack got away this time, but just barely. Jack was described by police as being around 40 years of age, 6 feet tall, and weighing somewhere between 200 and 220 pounds. During each robbery, he was always polite, made sure to cut the phone line, and he never touched any of the women that he forced to disrobe in any inappropriate way. It was theorized that he left the ladies in the nude to inconvenience them so that they couldn't call the police. Now this backfired a bit during one robbery when someone called the police to let them know that a naked woman was running up and down the street screaming at the top of her lungs. By the time the police arrived, Jack had a 15-minute lead over them. It should come as no surprise that the press was having a field day with this story. The March 7, 1960 issue of the Titusville Herald joked, quote, Jack the Stripper, the San Diego bandit, really puts some truth in the girl's long-standing complaint. But I don't have a thing to wear. And that's the end of the quote. And this is where the story of Jack the Stripper fades from the headlines. There was a story on March 17th about a robbery at a store named Jay's Display. The thief ordered a young clerk to disrobe before hitting her on the head and stealing $500. The police dismissed this as a copycat crime since our Jack was never violent and he only held up taverns at night. Fast forward to October 11th of 1962. A man entered a Southgate, California bar which was owned by a 25-year-old divorcee named Arlene Van Note. He entered around 2 a.m. and asked for a beer. He then pulled out a gun and announced that he was holding up the place. $55 was taken from the cash register. As you can probably guess, the robber asked Miss Van Note and the bar manager, which was 35-year-old Joan Bagley, to remove all of their clothing. I'm Jack the Stripper, he was quoted as saying. I make my living this way. He supposedly threatened to rape Miss Van Note, but then said, I'll put your clothes back on. I don't like women anyway. Miss Van Note then put her clothes back on and was forced to tie up the still nude Miss Bagley. Then Jack did something he had not done during any of the previous robberies. He took Mrs. Van Note as a hostage and they used her car as a getaway vehicle. Eight hours later, the two were almost 300 miles away from the scene of the crime and they were at the Desert Inn Casino in Las Vegas. Mrs. Van Note whispered to a change girl that she was being held hostage and that the man she was with was armed. 
So the police were alerted and they descended upon a room at the Tam O'Shanter Motel that, you know, that they had rented on the Vegas Strip. Now, maybe it's just me, but I find it a bit humorous that Jack the Stripper was finally caught on the Vegas Strip. The police arrested Bobby Ray Watts. He was a 25-year-old, six-foot-tall employee of a Huntington Park, California furniture company. He was ultimately charged in federal court with kidnapping and interstate transportation of a stolen vehicle. The judge in the case dismissed the charge on the stolen vehicle, and that's because the indictment handed down failed to mention that the car was stolen. And then Watts' lawyer challenged the kidnapping charge. He claimed that the indictment failed to state that Mrs. Van Note was being held for ransom or for a reward. Now, I don't know about you, but I consider kidnapping to mean being held against one's will, not whether or not a ransom is asked for. Now, as I bring the story to a close, I should point out that Bobby Ray Watts claimed that he was Jack the Stripper during this particular robbery. But it appears that they did not charge him with any of the other prior robberies. My guess is that either the police lacked the evidence tying him to those crimes, or he was just another copycat. Also, around the same time, another guy named Jack Wilkerson, who was also nicknamed by the press Jack the Stripper, was arrested for a similar string of robberies in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And of course, then there's the infamous Jack the Stripper murders in London between 1964 and 1965 that took the lives of six to eight women. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, a few words from our retro sponsor. Christmas is almost upon us. And this Christmas, as in the past five years, the finest gift you can give is a United States savings bond. They're the same safe, profitable government bonds we call war bonds and bought regularly to help win the war. Young people enjoy receiving U.S. savings bonds because it gives them a feeling of having money of their own. Government bonds help give them a start in their college education or in their chosen profession. To older people, government bonds mean a future free from financial worry. They have a chance to make all of their retirement dreams come true. 
So for your own good and the good of the people you care about, keep buying United States savings bonds. You're lending your money to the government, and they'll pay you $4 for every $3 invested. By the purchases of savings bonds, you're helping to fight inflation. Invest all of your spare funds in government bonds. By doing so, you'll be banking on your future. And now, back to Erskine Johnson. While he never achieved the fame of other competing gossip columnists, you know, like Hedda Hopper and Walter Winchell, Erskine Johnson did manage to hold his own. He was born Joseph Erskine Johnson in 1910 and wrote a nationally syndicated column starting in the late 1930s. His radio show ran under several names during the 1940s. It was originally called Hollywood Spotlight, then it became Tonight in Hollywood, and finally Erskine Johnson's Hollywood, which this commercial for savings bonds is lifted from. This particular episode featured an interview with actor Michael Redgrave and was originally broadcast on December 17th of 1945. It was broadcast on the Mutual Don Lee Network. A popular feature of Erskine's interviews was a segment that he called Hollywood Confessions, and that's where celebrities revealed something unknown about their lives. Now, there was nothing scandalous at all, you know, that is, unless you consider Roy Rogers admitting that he hated lemon pie to be a shocking revelation. I certainly don't. In this episode, Michael Redgrave confessed that he almost ruined his first screen test. There was some annoying sound on the movie set. It turned out to be his teeth chattering from the cold. So they warmed him up and he successfully completed the screen test. Erskine Johnson wrote his newspaper column for 31 years. He wrote his last column in July of 1967. He then retired to manage the Harbor Lights restaurant, uh, which he owned in Oceanside, California. He died in 1984 at the age of 74. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for like to call News of the Weird Past. And before I get going, I should tell you that all of today's tidbits have one thing in common. They're all about absent-minded people. And our first story for today is dated September 10th of 1928. It was reported that a guy named William Jones and his family stopped at a service station in Chicago, Illinois to have their car checked out. Now, while the car was being examined, Mrs. Jones decided to go to the bathroom and wash her hands. When she was done, she was shocked to see that the car was gone. It turns out that her husband drove off with their two kids asleep in the back seat. And my guess is he didn't get too far before he realized that he'd forgotten his wife back at the filling station. I'm guessing those kids were screaming. Our second story is dated August 30th of 1960, where it's reported that a 79-year-old man named Maxim Radin checked into the Hotel Ashley in New York City. He was on his way back to his native Yugoslavia after having spent the previous 50 years working as a barber in California. Uh, Raiden paid his $12 for a two-day stay at the hotel, unpacked his bags, and then he decided to go for a walk. Now, this is a really big mistake on his part. You see, he was unfamiliar with the big city, and he lost his bearings and could not find his way back to the hotel. Even worse, he forgot the name of the hotel. So for two days, he wandered the streets trying to locate the building, but he, you know, nothing looked familiar. He was unsuccessful. So finally he had no choice, he went to the police. But with no name to go by, they just simply drove him around the area until Raiden finally spotted what he thought was his hotel. 
So he went up to his room, put the key in the lock, and opened the door. To his shock, all of his possessions were gone, which included his life savings. This included $11,067 in travel's checks, $3,800 in hard cold cash, $600 worth of $20 coins, a bill of sale for his Oakland apartment building, his passport, and of course his ticket back to Yugoslavia. Raiden made the only logical conclusion anyone in his boat could make. He had been robbed. He had just enough money hidden in his money belt to pay for a flight back to California. But luck was on his side. It turns out that his luggage was not stolen. The manager of the hotel had put all of Raiden's belongings into storage. Everything except the one suitcase containing the money and the valuables. Now that suitcase was later found hidden under the bed by two boys, 11 and 13 years old. Uh, And they were of course the sons of a couple that rented the room after Raiden had left. All of his possessions and his life savings were returned to Raiden and he set sail on the very next boat to Yugoslavia on September 16th. Now my guess is that he was certain to remember the name of the hotel he was staying at when he returned to New York for that voyage. And our last story for today is dated May 6th of 1954, which reported that an unidentified man accidentally left a package containing $40,000 in cash on the back seat of a taxi cab. Now that's a lot of money today, but to put it in perspective, that would be about $334,000 in today's U.S. Uh, currency. Now the cash was wrapped in a plain brown uh, paper uh, cover. Now, the passenger immediately realized his error and hailed a second taxi to go after the first one. But when they finally caught up to it, he found out that they'd been tailing the wrong taxi cab. The rider then got in touch with the vice president of the taxi company, and then he was able to get in contact with the taxi driver. The driver, Rocco Bologna, uh, had found the package shortly after the passenger got out, and he placed it unopened by his side on the front seat. The package and its owner were reunited shortly thereafter, and in return, he was rewarded with a $20 bill. Now, $20 may have seemed like a really big tip at first, but my guess he didn't find it so big and generous uh, when he learned that the package really had $40,000 in it. And now for the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked how much NASA was fined by the Shire of Esperance for littering when the space station Skylab crashed back to Earth. And I gave you five choices. They were one, $400, two, $800, three, $1,500, four, $2,300, or five, $4,700. The answer is actually the first choice, $400. Now, since the entire Skylab program costs about $2.2 billion, that's about $10 billion today, you would have thought that NASA could have sprung for another $400, uh, but they never paid. Now, of course, the whole thing was a bit of a lark, so you know the officials of Esperance just wrote the whole thing off three months after Skylab's return. Now, fast forward to 2009, that's 30 years later, and the bill was still unpaid. So the highway radio program Barker and Barley in the Morning picked up on the unpaid bill and they decided to have a fundraiser. Their listeners donated the needed funds and the littering fine was finally paid off in April of 2009. So I guess 30 years late is better than never. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on Jack the Stripper, as well as our question of the day regarding NASA's littering fine, listening to our retro sponsor uh, on U.S. savings bonds, and the news of the weird past tidbits, which included the guy that forgot his wife at the gas station. I actually had a second story like that, so I guess it happened more than once. Um, also, the absent-minded uh, barber, which is my favorite of the three, and the $40,000 cab ride. As always, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. You can also find additional resources, including some of the scans of the documents that I use to research the story, uh, some additional comments I have on the podcast, and some related links on my Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com slash useless information podcast. That's useless information podcast. It's all one word. Now, I've kind of been absent from Facebook. You may recall that I had uh, cut my finger and got some stitches on it. Those came off, and then we bought a washer and dryer for uh, President's Day. And we didn't have a laundry room yet. That was still under construction. So I had to put up all the wall board, spackle, paint, and uh, put down the ceramic tile and finish some of the plumbing before it showed up on Saturday. Uh, it did show up, and that project's done. And then I was able to work on this podcast. I did not post the information last month, but I promise that I will do it this time. Anyway, if for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. Uh, you can also go to Facebook and contact me through that. Well, I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope that you tune in the next time. Bye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.